Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 131 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So happy new year, Matt. Happy new year, Mark. You ready for 2022? I am. I am. Good to have you back in the seat after I'm your here and I'm ready. absence last week, but me and Nick uh, had a, a really nice conversation. So I listened to it. It was really good. Yeah. Happy to have you back, though. Oh, I'm um, ready, too. And got got a surprise for you too coming up here. So oh, okay. okay. Um, so before we begin, uh, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are for the full 2021 year, and the data is from StockCharts.com. Okay. S&P 500 index finished the year higher by 26.89%. The Dow higher by 18.73%. The NASDAQ Composite Index higher by 21.39%. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index up 14.54% for the year. Vanguard International ETF X United States was higher by 8.98%. The three-month T-bill yield currently at 0.08%. The two-year Treasury yield at 0.78%. And the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.63%. So uh, just based on an index level, Matt, uh, another strong year for for stocks. Yeah, and I I think that people were surprised in general uh, at how strong they were, Mark. And I will say, in addition, there were a lot of whammies that concerned investors at certain points in the year when people were saying, well, this definitely has to be the top Mm -hmm. and the market's going to have to have a serious correction. And so far in retrospect, all those dips turned out to be buying opportunities. Right. And I think it is me foreshadowing that you're going to continue to have whammies in 2022. We will have little sell-offs. You will have people come out of the woodworks, pounding the table that this is the beginning of the next sell-off. And I would recommend that you stick with your game plan and turn the news off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, as we just said, almost 27% this year, last year was around 18%. The year before was high 20s, low 30s or something like that. So it's been three consecutively strong years uh, of performance. Yeah. And I talked about in the podcast at the beginning of December, you know, relational underlying earnings have really risen dramatically over the last couple of years, along with stock prices. So when you look at the overall earnings of the S&P 500 index and you look at where they were two, three years ago, and where they're at now, it relatively mimics the, the percentage movement that you've had in equity prices, mm-hmm. which that's not bearish. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if, if people or excuse me, people, uh, these companies continue uh, the pace of earnings growth, which who's to say if they are or not. Mm hmm. You know, we could be in for more years of pretty good stock return. So, and I think we'll get a good temperature ch- test here coming up in January. We're going to have Q4 earnings season start here in a couple of weeks. Financial the financials will begin in the middle of January here, and at the end of the month, you'll have the bulk of S and P 500 companies reporting. And I think not only is there going to be an expectation, of course, how they did in Q4, but what they're going to say about the outlook here for 2022. Right. And I think it's going to be their forward-looking comments are going to be listen to very closely. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed for sure. Uh, moving on to big news headlines, current events from the week. Uh, the, <laughs> this first one I found, um, it's a web page on the IRS website, Matt, that was floating around Twitter last week. And I found it weird because I had no idea what I'm about to say existed and was actually on the IRS website. Okay. I'm all ears. Um, I thought it was a joke at first, but then looked into it and found that this is in fact real and defined by the IRS on their website. Okay. Okay. So on the IRS website has a section for stolen property. Oh, okay. And it says if you steal property 
you must report its fair market value in your income in the year you steal it. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you return it to its rightful owner in the same year. This is part of the IRS tax code. This is real. People can look this up on the IRS website, and this is on the IRS website. That's scary. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I w- I'm just going out on a limb here that if if you've stolen something, <laughs> probably not going to take it upon yourself to report it. On, I would assume on that your would income be the case. for that year. I would assume that would be the case. I'd be curious to see if anyone ever does Did that. It. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that'd be great. That would be great. That would be a good little research project to do because that's just comical. Oh my gosh, that is great. Anyway, so I thought that that was just kind of funny to share with people. My goodness. uh, Because I had no idea that that was an actual thing. Would that be the, uh, you have to report that in the schedule stolen? Yeah, (laughs) there's a a schedule, (laughs) you know, X for stolen property. (laughs) I'm sorry. Did you? Oh, that's funny. Um, Okay. Uh, On a more serious note, the Social Security offices are going to be remaining closed uh, indefinitely. So prior to March of 2020, the local SSA offices were uh, a common resource for individuals to get help with Social Security related services like applying for retirement benefits or Medicare. Uh, But obviously, as COVID forced large parts of the country into lockdown, uh, local Social Security offices were closed to the public. And even despite most businesses and government agencies having reopened since then, uh, Social Security offices have kept their doors shut uh, and instead are focusing on expanding and revamping its online services to make it possible to access most, if not all, Social Security services without the need for an in-person appointment. And in November, the media began reporting that Social Security was going to begin to reopen its field offices starting on January 3rd. Okay. Um, But on December 22nd, uh, Social Security offices reversed course, announcing that that January 3rd date had been part of a draft re-entry plan and that the agency currently has no plans to return employees to local offices. So... um, Two comments. First is I think it's a good thing that they're revamping their services to mostly be done or have everything be done online. I think that's a step in the right direction. However, uh, the negative side to that is that they're not there yet. So I've personally had conversations with clients that have been trying to get answers from Social Security and have not been able to do so, and they're locked out of their account online, so they can't do anything online. So oh, that's an that's an issue. That's frustrating. Um, so just a heads up there for everybody. Um, there is no plan to return people to the local SSA offices at this time, um, but we'll keep up, keep people up to date if anything changes there. You know what comes to mind too is you know we even have a subsection of our client base that doesn't have a computer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so with that being said, you know, I think people are going to have to utilize resources such as their local libraries to, you know, schedule these appointments because a lot of them might be done not only by phone, but by, by video conference. Right. And so that might be something where people start tapping into their libraries to hold these meetings. Yeah. So hopefully they're working hard on the back end to get things ramped back up uh, from an online standpoint. Sure. But people sure. could continue to see... Um, slowness and response time and Mm. that type of thing while this continues to occur. Mm. Um, So last but not least, um, going back to my point about the surprise for you, Matt, back on November 18th was when you went on your first That's Not Bearish rant on the show. (laughs) And uh, we said we'd update listeners on the performance of the S&P 500 from that point through the end of the year. And I'm happy to report that the S&P 500 finished the year higher by 1.65% from that point. There you go. So, I mean, when you start blocking out the fear mongering Mm -hmm. from not only a lot of the financial news networks, but just, you know, um, uh, a lot of sources that prey on the fear aspect, and you actually start looking at fundamental data. And at that time, in the middle of November, then right after Thanksgiving, when the latest variant of COVID came out, the underlying data, you know, to me, was not bearish, mm-hmm. the data we were getting. And 
it's just, that's the stuff as an investor you have to focus on. You have to turn off the noise. What really matters? Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, the number one driver of a stock is its underlying earnings, its underlying fundamentals. And then you overlay that with how the, the stock is performing. Because as you would say, Mark, price doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I can go on a rant with this, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that, you know, it worked. Obviously, your shirt in, paid off, your t shirt paid off. In hindsight, you know, I can, in theory, spike the football on that. You can. And, and listeners are still going to hear me say stuff in regards to <laughs> that's not bearish. I got a couple points today I'm going to throw out there. Okay. All right. Well, we'll continue it's it on in 2022. Dead. All right. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the past week. Uh, last week, Nick and I spoke in detail on the Santa Claus rally and its implications. Um, but this is just... One component of Jeff Hirsch's January trifecta indicator. So Jeff is a researcher um, in charge of the Stock Traders Almanac, which uh, some people might have heard of before, and he's always crunching data on market returns, right? Mm -hmm. So um, he has an indicator called uh, the, the January trifecta that takes into account uh, three components. One of those is the Santa Claus rally that we discussed in detail on last week's episode, which is looking favorable, which is looking favorable right now. Um, and I told people last week that I would go over the other two components this week with you, Matt. Okay. So, um, so just some, some more history before I get into the other two components, when all three components are positive, the S and P 500 has been up 90% of the time. And that's 28 of 31 years with an average gain of 17.5%. That's not bearish. It's not. It's the first, Well, no, that's the second one of 2022 because you said it earlier in the show. But All right. you want to keep a running total, Jenna? Jenna's okay. on it. Uh, when any of them are down, <clears throat> the year's results are reduced. And when all three are down, the S&P was down three out of eight years, which, which had an ad average loss of 3.6%. With bear markets in 1969, the market was down 11.5% that year. A bear market in 2000, the market was down 10.1% that year. And this was before things went to hell in a handbasket in 2008 when the market was down 38.5%. Uh, okay? Okay. So the other two components of the January trifecta. So number one, you have the Santa Claus rally, which is the last five days of the trading year, plus the first two days of the new trading year. So uh, that actually, the Santa Claus rally ends today. today at the market close. So we'll keep everybody up to date and provide an update next week as to how that finished out. Okay. Second component of the January trifecta is the first five days of January. So if the first five days of January are positive, positive. tends to bode well for, for the, the rest, rest of, of the year. year. Correct. Okay. So uh, the first five days of um, January, <clears throat> and this takes it even further, if the first five days of January are greater then plus 1.5%, the average return for that year is 15.6%. There's only been two years out of, uh, let's see. 15? 15 years um, where the first five days of the year have been positive and the S&P uh, 500 was negative. Those two years were in 1973. The index was down 17.4%. And 2018, when the index was down 6.2%. Yeah, it's about 20, 20 data sets. Yeah, 20, 15, 20 data sets. Um, and again, uh, if you're watching on uh, on YouTube, Jenna's going to put these charts up so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if not, you can check out the show notes uh, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or our Facebook or LinkedIn page at Jessup Wealth Management. Uh, the third component, Matt, is what Jeff calls... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the January barometer. Okay. So there's an old saying in our industry that suggests as goes January, as so goes, goes the, rest the, year. Of the year. Okay. So the January, January barometer says a lower S and P 500 index, uh, in any given year could be a warning. So when there are positive full months of January, the average return for the S and P 500 that year is almost 12% in the green. Okay. 
When January is negative, the average one-year return is 1.7%. So wow. that's a big difference, that's right? That's a big, big difference. So uh, the January barometer, however, this comes from Ryan Dietrich at LPL Research. Uh, J- January barometer hasn't been very accurate uh, lately. So I'm going to list off several recent years where the January returns have been negative, but there's still been a positive year for the S&P 500. Right. So in 03, 05, 08, 09, 2010, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2020, and 2021, uh, a negative return in January of 2020, and the index uh, finished positive in the green by about 18%. Yeah. So, um, again, three indicators that if all three are positive, it tends to bode well going forward over the next 11 months through the year. Uh, I'm going to point out that it doesn't always happen that way. Nope. There are a couple instances, as we've outlined in the past, that you know, S&P 500 is negative for the year, even when Santa Claus rally is positive, first five days of January are positive, and the full year of January is positive for the S&P 500, where we still have seen weakness in just a couple of years. So just want to throw it out there that anything's possible. Yeah. And looking at the stats, the, the obviously the, the math is on your side. Right. Right. And that's, exactly. that, that, that's the key point is that, you know, these are some useful indicators to look at, because I'm going to talk about here in a little bit is why the market tends to do um, good in the month of January. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's one of the things I like to point out. I always like to bring things up here that people typically aren't going to see other places. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, it's just education. Yeah. You know, it's, try, it's trying to bring what you and I do on a daily basis and our years of experience and, and, and bring this in an educational format to the masses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, second piece I had was a blog post by J.C. Peretz, who we had on the podcast earlier in 2021, titled Wall Street is Worried. Good. Love climbing a wall worry. So he says Wall Street analysts are coming out with their 2022 forecasts, and we all know how accurate those tend to be. In the latest float of the bear parade, Wall Street's sell side analysts are putting out some of the most bearish forecasts in recent memory. Good. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street strategists are forecasting smaller gains for the S&P 500 in 2022. Among 13 banks and financial services firms whose analysts have published 2022 forecasts, the average target for the S&P 500 to end next year is 49.40, about 4.5% above where the index closed on Thursday of last week. Sell-side analysts are bearish, financial advisors are bearish, individual investors are bearish. The S&P is breaking out to new all-time highs. So typically, Matt, this is exactly how it goes, right? I, I, I love everything you're saying is good. Yeah, exactly. You know, so he, he provides charts in this article that shows the S&P breaking out to new all-time highs. Also provides a, sh- a chart uh, showing the relative performance of junk bonds to treasury bonds. And just as a reminder for people, uh, junk bonds are a, a risk-on indicator, right? So when people are risk-on People are investing in stocks. Typically, high-yield junk bonds are outperforming treasuries because they're perceived as more risky. Yes. And so to define that for our listeners, if a bond is investment grade, it means that legally a bank can invest its reserves in those types of bonds, which deem to be higher quality, where the default risk is a lot lower. Once you go to non-investment grade, has lots of names junk bonds, high yield, non-investment grade. And really what it means is you're taking more risk, the risk of default is higher, to where the uh, Federal Reserve is not comfortable with banks investing their reserves in those types of bonds because they're not safe enough, they feel, for bank reserves. Right. So you relate it to if people or that underlying asset class is performing well, that's a risk-on indicator for you. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you see, you know, treasury bonds outperforming junk bonds, that's just a, you know, a little alarm saving. that goes off. It's like, hey, people are, are taking a little bit of a risk on or excuse me, risk off stance. And that's something to take note of. It's information. And historically in the markets, viewers and listeners, people will call the bond market kind of the smart money. 
because the bond market from a dollar value standpoint is drastically larger than the stock market. Hence, it takes more capital to move those markets. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be money that is, let's just say, more methodical hit traditionally with their thought process. They tend to not shoot first and ask questions later as much as they do in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And I think with when you start adding up those items, it, it just backs up your, your, your point that, you know, the, the, the watching the bond market is an important tell at times for the equity markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're <clears throat> we talked about last year, uh, you know, how it was kind of a mixed bag all year. Things just were kind of like choppy and messy and things were back and forth and we were getting mixed signals all year. But yet S&P 500 didn't fall more than 5.2%. The worst day wasn't greater than 2.3%. And here we are almost 27% higher than we were starting in, in 2021. Um, but there were times where I can take you back to where people were literally freaked out yeah, and scared no, I, that we were going to have a significant correction multiple times last year. Agreed, agreed. But I think that we're, the point I was trying to make is we're back to, we're getting mixed signals. We have S&P 500 at all-time highs. Uh, junk bonds are outperforming out treasury bonds. Um, but just yesterday, I was doing some research, and over the previous one month, there's defensive sectors that are starting to outperform the general market. So when I say defensive I sectors- I saw the internal research note you sent to us. Talking about utilities, real estate, healthcare, and staples. They're at the top of the list of performance over the previous one month. Right? And on paper, that's not a good sign for the markets. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That is that <laughs> that is bearish for the markets, but that's only one piece of information. That's right. Because you can look to the equity markets and be like, we're sitting at all-time highs, so what's what's going to give? It, it, it is a data input that you have to then aggregate among other data points. But to be specific on that one, that is not <laughs> bullish. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> agreed. Um, so yeah, so always good stuff coming from JC. I'm sure we will talk uh, about more things with him later this year. My last point on this is uh, for the viewers and listeners out there who have listened to the podcast for a while, they know that Mark is not a fan of of, of Wall Street predictions. Nah. So to poke the bear, I literally sent Mark yesterday a synopsis from Bloomberg of all the predictions for all the various subtopics of the market from S&P targets to the bond market to Federal Reserve monetary policy, all the predictions, just so I could poke the bear. <laughs> and we do, I mean, me and you just do it for fun between each other. We give each other our predictions for the next we year. Do. And, we you do. know, but, but we don't broadcast no, that. No, we do not. Right? We do not. Right? To make people think and get people freaked out, right? Yes, Because yes. it doesn't matter Correct. what me and you think. Yeah, right? right. That's why I only share it with you. Yeah. Um, okay, so the last thing I had was a snippet from a blog post from Nick Maguli titled uh, How to Invest Your Money When Inflation is High. So Nick says, gold has long been thought of a hedge against inflation. But when looking at the years since 1976, when inflation exceeded 4%, gold actually had a negative median real return. Really? Really, asset classes that performed better included real estate investment trusts at a 6% real return, international stocks at 2%, and the S&P 500 at 1%. This makes intuitive sense as owners of real estate can raise rents and corporations can increase prices in response to inflation, potentially preserving their profitability. On the other hand, assets where investors received fixed payments over time, for example, individual corporate bonds, tend to perform poorly because those payments do not increase to match the rise in inflation. Of course, inflation is not bad news for all types of bonds, as I-bonds whose yield takes into account the inflation rate. And we talked about I-bonds on an episode earlier in 2021. Yeah, we did. We did. You did specifically. Um, ultimately, though, the fact that domestic and international stocks plus REITs tend to perform well in inflationary environments suggests that investors with diversified portfolios are likely to already hold a significant percentage of assets that perform well during inflationary period. So that's a really good point at the end that he made there is, you know, we've been getting the question. I'm sure everyone else has been asking the question. It's like, how do I invest in times during inflationary environments? And most of the time, you probably don't have to make too many changes. Just wait till my next, when I start here in a second. <laughs> Did you read my notes? No. Okay. Mm -mm. Well, listeners, you're going to enjoy this. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing that, that comes to mind is, 
markets are too smart for people to have their cake and eating it too, right? Because Absolutely. on the one hand, you're like, cake okay, returns the volatility. right. How do I invest for inflation? And we just determined equities are a good way to do that or real estate via equities are a good way to do that. Um, but at the same time, you have people that are worried and want to protect their assets and put their money in treasuries and liquid corporate bonds and that type of thing. But it's like you can't have one without the other and have this perfect world where you're insulated from all this risk. So people just need to understand the environment that we're in right now and the environment that we're dealing with because you can't, you know, be optimally invested for an inflationary environment while at the same time, you know, taking out all risk that has to come with investing in the equity markets. Yeah. And this is why I think so many firms use cookie cutter modern portfolio modern portfolio theory models mm -hmm. and they just sit there and say, well, we're not going to try to, to actually think critically. We're just going to put a little bit in all over the place and this people get the market averages. Yeah. And we see this playing out right now, especially with U.S. stocks and, and real estate. Real estate was strong in, in 2021, obviously, both mm -hmm. in the in the public equity sector and also just in the housing market. Uh, we're still waiting on international to, to turn around and, and start to perform well. That hasn't popped up yet. But you know, this research uh, makes sense to me. And we've seen, like I said, two out of the three that Nick mentioned uh, have been really strong in this inflationary environment. Well, this is going to play perfectly off this. Are you ready for this? Okay. So my first piece is rising interest rates hurt stocks, right? So wrong. Well, here we go. This piece is from Larry Tintarelli. He's a trader I follow on Twitter. What a great name. Mm -hmm. What a it's great, great name. yeah. I Sounds like it. an Italian name. I love Tentarelli. it. I'd love it. I would assume. So um, this chart is going to be on our show notes, and Jenna's going to overlay this right now on the YouTube video. And this piece is a uh, uh, from Bespoke. Bespoke Investment Research is what he posted. And it's a part of their 2022 outlook. And it's going to have a table, and I'm going to read what the table's about first. Quote, while rate hikes, meaning interest rate hikes, listeners, are often put forward as a key headwind for stocks, Federal Reserve tightening cycles do not have a robust track record of weakening equity market returns. In the table I'm about to discuss, in what Jenna's going to have listed here and in our show notes online, it shows the performance of the U.S. equity market following rate hikes since 1955. As shown, the broad market, represented in this case as the S&P 500 index mark, tends to do poorly in the first three months of a tightening cycle over recent years. But longer term, it turns out to being a buying opportunity as the forward returns average a positive 7.1% over the first six months following the initial rate hike. And for that six-month period, and there's a lot of, uh, of data sets for this, it's positive 86% of the time. Now, do you think if you got on a financial news station and you said this, that li listeners and viewers would continue to watch? No. no. It's not fear-mongering. Not fear-mongering, baby. Doesn't doesn't keep you gripped and glued to the to the TV set. Right. So I'm going to give you some more statistics with this. So it shows going out a year from the initial interest rate higher, moving rates higher, mm -hmm. average return 10%, 10.02. So hypothetically, let's say the Fed raises rates for the first time in just March of 2022. This would be from the first rate raise. From the first rate raise, correct. Uh, average going back to 1955, 10.02% being positive 78% of the time over the next 12 months. 18 months, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's higher by 12% even, positive 71% of the time. Two years out, on average, up 15.5%, positive 71% of the time. So why am I highlighting this? not knowing your notes and what you were going to discuss today with our viewers and listeners, I want to start to get rid of this negative narrative that higher interest rates spells doom and gloom for stocks. 
Yes. There's an association with that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the one last point I want to make is this. And if the Fed is going to begin to raise interest rates, what does that mean, Mark, about the underlying fundamentals of the economy? In my opinion, it would mean that the Fed thinks that the economy is strong enough to handle higher rates. Is that bearish or bullish? Bullish. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And we got to start changing the narrative as to how people view this. Because if the Fed were to come out and shock the market by lowering rates, mm -hmm. what does that tell you? That the economy is not in a good spot. And they that, need to, would be, that would and be they need no to, good. And they need to you know, incentivize right. it. They that, gotta, would be, that would be bad. That, that if, would be if, bad. If the Fed raised rates, let's say, hypothetically twice this year, and then all of a sudden they lower rates, that would be an issue. It would be. That would be an You're issue. sending a direct message to the market. Fundamentals aren't good. We see something negative on the horizon. We're going to try to stimulate the economy. Mm -hmm. Not a good thing. Yeah. And the way that you, you know, put that in, in normal terms for people, what happened in February and March of 2020, the market fell apart because of COVID and the Fed lowered rates. They so did. if the Fed lowers rates before a big event like that, you better believe it. You better perk your ears up. Exactly. Right. All right. So here's my next thing. I'm going to start um, educating our viewers and listeners about why January tends to be a good month for the markets. Why, Mark? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have a piece of research from Mr. Thomas. He runs Top Down Charts. We reference his research a lot. We've had him on the podcast before. This research piece is from December 26th. What he does is he shows a chart of median monthly flows into equity mutual funds and exchange traded funds as a percentage of their size of funds. So a percentage of their assets under management, okay? And the most positive month is January. It's about 0.25%. Uh, so you mean you're talking about the, the fresh capital, new money coming fresh into money funds. going yeah. into these investments. Yeah. Okay. So why does not only January, but the first couple of months of a new year, why do you tend to see money come into the markets? Okay. So I sat down and these are the big reasons why. First, 401k participant contributions. What happens, listeners and viewers, is you have higher compensated individuals who tend to very quickly max out their 401k contributions in the beginning of a new year. Everything from they max out what they pay into Social Security, which there's an income threshold that maxes out at. Same thing when they do their 401k deferrals. So you now have all that money come in, into the market, but say by February or March, when someone maxes out their 401k, that money stops coming out of their paycheck and hence doesn't go into the market, doesn't mm -hmm. go into their account. Mm -hmm. And so you have that fresh money starting to come back in. And it's the same story with IRAs. People that, you know, we've gone over research on this show before that it's better to just get the money in, in and invested right away. A lot of people are doing that and maxing out their IRAs for early the on. year. Yeah. And you've talked about that. You showed the stats of doing it at the beginning of the year, doing it uh, consistently dollar throughout cost dollar cost averaging, yep. and then doing it at the end of the year mm -hmm. and what the numbers were. Mm -hmm. Two more things that are important to discuss. You tend to get in the first quarter a lot of contributions from what defined benefit plans. Okay. That is a fancy term, listeners and viewers, for pension funds. Okay. So there is a certain formula that is given to these pension funds by the government as to how much they need to be funded, okay? And we've talked about this before, about a lot of pension funds are nowhere near fully funded. A lot mm -hmm. are way underfunded, right. like 70 cents on the dollar. So when they run these calculations at the end of the year, it tells that company, okay, you now need to put in X amount of money to meet that minimum funding threshold, and it's based upon a lot of statistics, number of participants, average ages. There's a lot of numbers that go into that. OK, mm -hmm. but the message is it tends to be every year, even when, when the stock market's good, they tend to need to put more money into them. Right. And that money coming into the market tends to make its way into fresh capital buying and providing demand for stock prices. Mm -hmm. Right. Last area, profit sharing contributions. There's a lot of companies that will look at their previous year profitability 
and sometime during the first quarter, they will share a percentage of those profits with their staff, their participants, their teammates, etc. And that money tends to go into their retirement accounts. Hence, it tends to go into the market, mm -hmm. depending upon how they're invested. So why am I highlighting this? I want to provide factual data as to why the market tends to be stronger in the beginning of the year. You got a lot of fresh money coming into the market and you got that money. It's creating demand for stocks. Right. Anything so, else? So, no, it just again, I say this a lot, but it makes sense why January tends to be a strong month. And when it's not, it should make people say, well, geez, you're even with have all, this, all money this money coming, coming into, into the market. market. What, what's going on? Yeah, mm, something's not right. Right. OK, so uh, I have two more items. One, I want to spend a little more time on because I, I think this is really going to you're going to find this really interesting, Mark. OK, OK. Uh, the title of this piece for me is Shortening Innovation Cycles. And this is from the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. <laughs> Chief Digital Evangelist, Mr. Uh, Ashvar. And he posted this and it talks about, quote, the long waves of innovation. And it goes back to nine, um, 1785. This was the first wave of innovation, and it lasted about 60 years, Mark. Okay. And it was water power, textiles, iron. In 1940, I'm sorry, in 1845, the second wave of innovation, steam power, rails, um, and steel. That lasted about 55 years. In the year 1900, the third wave of innovation, that was electricity chemicals, internal combustion engine. Think about how these things changed our society. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That wave was big and new and lasted for about 50 years. Okay. So in about 1950, the fourth wave, petrochemicals, electronics, aviation, that lasted about 40 years. You know, back in 1900, you weren't getting on a jumbo jet in New York and flying across the pond to Europe. <laughs> no. You were on a boat for right. weeks. Yeah. Okay. So the next yeah. wave, the fifth wave of innovation in 1990, digital networks, software, new media. Okay. So what he's showing here on this chart is the sixth wave, which started in about 2020. Okay. And he's guesstimating it could last upwards of 25 years. And he's saying this is going to be the time of artificial intelligence, robots, drones, clean technologies. I'm highlighting this for a couple of reasons. One, as I've talked about each cycle, how long it lasts or those waves gets less and less. You know, this digital network software, new media wave lasted 30 years. Now, think about before 1990, you weren't holding a computer like this in your hand. You had a Rolodex on your desk, okay? You weren't digitally entering stock trades. You were calling a trader and someone else did it for you, mm -hmm. okay? The reason I'm highlighting this is looking forward to these waves of innovation. First observation, it's easier for me to understand why industrials or uh, blue chip investments, they were blue chips in the 70s, 80s, and part of the 90s because they were the new technology. Mm -hmm. They were the staples. They were the companies that were tried and true. They were the ones dominating the stock market at that time. And you and I talked about what are the top 10 names in the S&P by market cap going back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It wasn't anything to do with technology. No. Okay. So now you're having this transition to technology dominated. And so I think we have to start changing our, our wording as to what defines a blue, blue chip, chip stock. That's a good point. I want to start challenging that narrative when I saw this. Yeah, because I think you can make the argument now that it's, you know, software, uh, cloud-based companies, um, you know, and... Like I like we talked about before, what we've seen and what we saw actually after the sell-off of 2020 that adds to this, Matt, is 
who did really well after the quick bear market we had in 2020. Turned All out the to big be tech companies, big tech, because underlying the actual demand for their goods and services not only didn't change in some instances, it went up. Mm hmm. But what what you're seeing is that even those big tech companies, when the market was still going down, those companies weren't going down as, as much. much as the market was. Correct. Right. And I think that's that flight to safety that you saw that there was a change. And it's like, oh, it's not the industrials anymore. That's the flock to safety. It could be these liquid big tech companies. I'm not saying that that's how it's going to be going forward, but it's just an observation. It is an observation. And I just want to throw this out there that I think we need to start redefining when someone says the word, this is a blue chip stock, the mindset of the GEs of the world, United Technologies of the world, you know, those industrial conglomerates. Procter I think that, that that mindset needs to start changing or we don't use the term blue chip anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's just times of evolving. And I think, you know, another thing to add to that is I still think technology has this big stigma on it. Like because of that's the, the only industry that could have a blow up like it did yeah, in the late 90s. That's a good point. That's not true. People think of 2000 to 02, the tech bubble. Mm -hmm. They think of 07 to 09. And I got to tell you, folks, industrials, materials, energy, they got whacked just as hard as tech did. Mm -hmm. Just as hard. Yep. But who gets a bad rap? Tech. Tech. I want to change. That's another, that's another media driven narrative. It is. In my opinion. It is. So the second point I want to make when I saw this chart is the with the innovation cycles becoming quicker and quicker as time goes on, Mark, I think it's going to lead to winners and losers rising or falling quicker in the future. Mm -hmm. And so what do I mean by that? The analogy is you go back to 1990 and you look at the top 10 stocks in the S&P by market cap and you fast forward to 2010 and there were maybe three of the 10 left and you go to now, maybe there's two, maybe one. I think the potential for winners and losers to rise and fall in the future, these cycles are going to be shorter and the, the difference between winners and losers stock performance wise could be quicker than in decades past. Yeah. Yeah. I think it could be too. It's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, how long this innovation cycle does last. And it's always fun to kind of play the game of, okay, so after this cycle, what's going to be, what's going to be next? Exactly. Right. right? And when those cycles start, they're always in such infancy of their investment phase where the risk is the highest. Mm -hmm. Think of space exploration. You were in the infancy of, of, of that industry. Yeah. High risk, high reward. Yeah. Okay. So um, I just want to kind of throw this out there because I just, I feel that the innovation, these cycles are going to continue. Um, productivity is most likely going to get better with technology evolution. You know, um, there have been a lot of research pieces that for decades since I've been in the industry that we are at peak profit margins, baloney. Yeah, that is malarkey, mm -hmm. because as technology continues to evolve, it's going to continue to make productivity go higher. And that's going to be a direct correlation to profit margins. Yeah, it is. So I don't subscribe to peak profit margin theory. No, I I'm not a subscriber. Yeah. Agreed. Last thing I want to share with listeners this week. I saw a tweet by Brian Portnoy, and it made me very sad. This is his tweet. You're not sad very often. So. No. 64% of financial planning clients report that they feel they have no one to talk to about their money, including their advisor. The mm. source is the secret financial lies of American 2018. I saw that and it made me sad because I feel that um, talking a little selfishly about our practice for a second, I think we do a really good job not only connecting with our clients, but being very available to them. And when I see this, it makes me sad that people feel that they can't, they don't have people to talk to about their finances or planning. And I saw this stat and made me sad. Yeah. And that's, you know, 
that's why we're here. This is why our industry exists, right? There, you know, we've gone through over the past several years of, of overcoming a big stigma, for example, about talking about mental health. And I think that there still is a stigma related to talking about finances. Um, and I just want people to know that there are professionals out there that will listen and that will help you. That's what our industry is for. Um, so, you know. It doesn't necessarily have to be us. I'm not putting this in for a plug for our firm. No. I want you to find people, you know, if you don't have a trusted advisor, you know, there are plenty of resources. Talk to your friends and family who they utilize. You know, that's a good way to start. Get a feeling for if they're happy who they use. I mean, practices like ours primarily grow by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. They really do. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's a good way to start getting a feeling for, you know, if you don't have a trusted advisor, how to find one. That's the first place I'd start. Right. Exactly. So that is, it's definitely something that needs to be talked about more because clearly there's a uh, a disconnect with saving rates and where they should be, uh, you know, compared to what they actually are right now. Yeah. And like anything else, you know, once you get the once you get going and you start planning your finances, it gets easier. Those first couple steps are always the hardest. Yeah, it is. It is. You just have to get started somewhere. You have to start sometime. You have to get right. started somewhere. Mm -hmm. Back to you, Mark. Okay. Um, <clears throat> financial planning topic of the week this week comes from an article in the Wall Street Journal titled AT&T slashed promised life insurance for former workers. Here we go. And time runs out at year end. And this is a follow-up conversation to the one that we had, Matt, a few weeks back about companies cutting their promised pension obligations, yeah. right? Or their um, ability to do, or the potential for them to do so. Yeah. And I have a, I have, like you just said, this doesn't make me feel good. It kind of makes me sad. And I have this knot in my stomach that is telling me that we're going to see more and more of this over the next several years. Okay. Yeah. Um, they start out by saying, uh, when Dean Allison left his job as a property manager at AT&T in 98, the company offered an incentive to retire, payment of at least $63,000 upon his death. He took the deal figuring the money would someday help his wife cover funeral expenses, pay outstanding bills, and have more to live on. Early in 2021, AT&T told Mr. Allison it would pay no more than $15,000 if he dies after December 31st. He got a nasty grim. Mm-hmm. AT&T's decision to cut life insurance and death benefits as of January 1st for many of the 220,000 retirees eligible for the benefits has roiled a generation of workers who say their former employer is reneging on a promise. We are working hard to responsibly balance the needs of the business and taking care of our current 200,000 employees and 500,000 retirees and their dependents said an AT&T spokesperson. It's admittedly a balancing act, one that many companies have not successfully navigated. Ratio five to two retirees to people still working. Mm -hmm. That's a little comfort to Mr. Allison, who's 75, who said, if they had told me this 10 years ago that they were going to cut this, I could have done some planning. AT&T retiree Monty Bagg said he expected his wife Phyllis to receive company-paid life insurance of at least $75,000 when he died, but AT&T had cut it to $15,000 if he dies after December 31st. Wow. In cutting ex uh, existing retirees' life insurance benefits, AT&T joins a few other large companies that have done so uh, in recent years. In 2019, 3M roughly halved such benefits. Uh, How Met Aerospace Inc., uh, which was a business carved out of Alcoa, estimated life insurance, uh, or excuse me, eliminated life insurance for some retirees. Altogether. Altogether. So this is just one of those things, again, if it is a benefit that you do not have ownership of yet, it is at risk of getting cut. Absolutely. And getting cut significantly. Absolutely. And it's sad, right? It's and, there's, just, and there's no company that it, you can say is rock solid because in 1990 people said AT&T and GE were rock solid. Oh my gosh. And me, it's I mean, true. And, and, well, okay. And let's call a spade a spade. Why is AT&T doing this? Because they have a ridiculous Listen amount of burden. Debt. Oh, it's, that's horrible. They kick the can, kick the can, kick the can. And, and now, now they can barely, from... they can barely kick the can anymore. Right. So 
again, not trying to pick on AT&T here. I just have a but feeling it's a good that example, this stuff though. It's is, a good example. is going to continue to happen, unfortunately. And it's not just going to be restricted to AT&T. I mean, there's a lot of legacy companies that their actuarial assumptions um, were way off back in the day. They haven't had enough stock market per exposure. The returns of the pension funds haven't been there. And I fear there's going to be the, the likelihood of more pension cuts, benefit cuts. There's more risk to that happening than not. Yeah. And, you know, my biggest concern is that you might have some of these companies start to break up and that they try to offload the pension liability to the financially weaker entities that break up. Mm -hmm. And that makes the chances of this happening even more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I again, so it wouldn't shock me. And again, not trying to pick up on any companies, but uh, GE is splitting up its businesses. They are. Johnson, Johnson and Johnson, Johnson is splitting up its businesses. So just be aware of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, right? and 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 so what it what it means is start taking control. Start mm -hmm. realizing that that is a possibility. Um, I gave when you get when you uh, pointed that out in a previous podcast. I gave the example of a client of ours who paid into a specific pension mm -hmm. and got a letter out of the blue that it was getting cut by 40%. And he was going to get 60 cents on the dollar. They took it as far as they could. And that's all the money they had. And they weren't going to put more money into it. And his check dropped uh, about three months later. That was it. Mm -hmm. That's as much advance notice as they gave him. Horrible situation. Mm -hmm. The blessing is this client was able to take a higher withdrawal from his portfolio to make up the difference. But there's a lot of people that A, don't have that capability. And that's why if, if you think that, you know, your perception is your pension might not be stable, start getting ahead of this. Start reevaluating your expenses, yeah. evaluating how money is saved, invested. This is something you got to take control on. Yeah. Okay. Or else you can, you're at the risk of, of being extremely disappointed and vulnerable. Yes. In retirement. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's it for this week, Matt. Anything else before we leave it here for the week? Nope. We're going to start earnings season here in a couple of weeks. I think that will dominate headlines and especially in the last two weeks of January coming up here. Um, I have, um, some stats next week talking about bonds and bond returns and a little, little tickler is, you know, we've been in the bond bull market for some time and I think mm -hmm. people need to start reevaluating their expectations for returns. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I was just reading uh, some research on that over the weekend, actually. So interested to see what you have to say next week. You got so. it, my friend. All right, well, we'll leave it there for episode number 131 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.